everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. Last week, we talked with Joel Bolivian about the top three apologetics questions he hears on campus. Joel is a High Point Church attender and a philosophy PhD student at UW-Madison. This week, we're going to get into Christian ethics questions. In this episode, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, Nick's content and ministry coordinator, will talk with Joel about what moral relativism is and what is wrong with it. Jill hints at three questions, but this episode will actually only cover the first one, and we'll get to the others in the coming weeks. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Jill Reese. I'm here with Nick. Hello. Hello, Nick. And I'm here. We're here with Joel again, Joel Bolivian. He joined us last week and we talked about the top three apologetics questions on campus. So if you're interested in that, you can go back and listen to that. And today he's back to talk with us about the top three or just three that he has selected, um, Christian ethics questions. So, um, Joel, why don't you frame for us what you mean by Christian ethics? Yeah, thanks so much. It's really great to be back here with each of you. Last time was just a blast. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, roughly Christian ethics has to do with an examination of what is good, what is morally good, what is morally bad, what's permissible, impermissible. These are sort of the big words we, we use in ethics. But from a Christian perspective, what does Christianity have to say about what's morally right, wrong, permissible, Mm -hmm. impermissible? And I think it's important to remember that there are two aspects um, that make Christian ethics unique and and distinct from other studies of ethics. The first one is that Christian ethics is integrally about imitation and not merely about rule following. So for those of hmm. you who have been following Nick's recent sermons, yeah. you'll, you, you know, you're, you've heard about imitation. I encourage you to go listen to those sermons. But the idea here is that we're not just studying a set of normative rules. We're thinking about how to imitate a particular life. We're imitating the life of Christ. So we cannot disconnect Christian ethics from apprenticeship to Jesus. And I just love the way that Dallas Willard frames apprenticeship. He says that, you know, an apprentice is someone who lives with another or who does a life with another to become like them and to be capable of doing what they do and to be the kind of person they are. And so Christian ethics is never just about theoretical reflection. It's never just about learning a set of rules. It's always about becoming like Jesus. And then second, Christian ethics is about what God is doing with all of creation and not merely about personal piety. So what do I mean by that? I think to understand this point, you have to go back to the very beginning and you have to you have to ask yourself, why is anything here? And why did God get all of this started? And so we go back to the Garden of Eden and we find that God's desire for creation was for us to live in communion with the creator. We were to be image bearers, image bearing stewards who governed creation and modeled and imaged the qualities of heaven, the qualities of God to the rest of creation, and then resounded creation's praises back to God. Um, and this was this, the kind of you know, the dream that God had for Eden and the fall happens. There's distortion and corruption in creation. There's rebellion, but God's plan is to restore his dream of Eden and to bring us back into a place of image bearing back into a place of communion. And notice that, you know, that's not just a plan that includes us personally and includes all of creation. So you can't disconnect Christian ethics from God's renewal project for the entire cosmos. 
God is doing something with the world. He's taking us a certain place. He's trying to restore all of creation. Um, you know, salvation isn't merely about escaping earth. It's about redeeming what God initially created is very good. And so Christian ethics is about partnering with God in that renewal process. We are meant to herald in and participate in the inbreaking kingdom of God. And so I just think it's really important as we do Christian ethics to think about these two things, imitation and then the renewal of all creation. That's part of what we're up to here. Um, so I, I think those are just some preliminary thoughts. Hmm. Yeah. Nick, did you want to add anything to that and why it's important for us? I don't, I don't think so. I think that that's, I think that's really good. Great. All right. Well, a good place to start then is with the question, what is moral relativism and what is wrong with it? So Joel, could you frame the concept of moral relativism for us? Definitely. So roughly moral relativism is the view that moral facts are determined by culture or by personal preference. So what do I mean by a moral fact? A moral fact is a lot like another, any other kind of fact. Uh, so think about the fact that mm, this cup is on the table or the fact that the earth revolves around the sun. These are physical facts or empirical facts, but these are truths about reality. And a lot of people think that there are moral facts. There are truths about reality, but they're not physical they're what you might call normative. They have to do with what's good and bad, right and wrong, what you ought to do, what you ought not to do. And so, for example, one of these moral facts might be something like, it is wrong to torture innocent people, or it is good to be kind. And the relativist comes along and says, great, I concede that there are moral facts. The relativist is not a nihilist. Moral nihilism says that there are no moral facts at all. The nihilist thinks that morality is a lot like talking about unicorns. We, we can get a grasp of what a unicorn is conceptually, but when we go out in the world, we won't find any unicorns. They're just not there. And similarly, if we go out and examine the world, we won't find any moral facts. They're just not there, says the moral nihilist. The moral relativist is not a nihilist. They think there are moral facts, but here's what's key. According to the moral relativist, moral facts are determined by your culture or according to one version of relativism, they're determined by you, the subject. Hmm. So morality is somewhat like a cultural custom, but a very weighty cultural custom. Um, and one implication of this is that there are no moral standards that transcend any person or any culture. Um, and it's important to contrast moral relativism, not with moral absolute absolutism, but with moral objectivism. Mm-hmm. And I can say more about that if, if you know you have any questions about that. But moral objectivism is the view that moral standards and facts ex- exist independent of any culture and any subject, perhaps with the exception of God, if you're um, a divine command theorist. Um, so the idea is that moral standards are not grounded in the stance or in the commitment of any person or any culture. They stand above. They transcend. But that could even be without God, moral objectivism. That's exactly right. There are a number of what are called moral realists who think that there are moral facts, they exist. And a lot of these moral realists um, think that we can ground morality apart from God. So for example, one of my professors, um, Russ Schaefer Landau, is kind of one of the leading defenders of this view of moral relativism. And it's, it's actually becoming somewhat popular view. I mean, I think around the late 20th century, there was kind of a revival in moral realism for really interesting philosophical reasons. 
So there are lots of moral realists in the academy. Um, I mean, what's what's super interesting about moral relativism is that it's it's believed to be really popular, and to mm-hmm. some extent, that's completely true. I mean, there's some research showing that you know a non-negligible number of people think that moral relativism is true. But amongst philosophers, moral, moral relativism isn't especially popular. And it's somewhat of a thorn in the side for a lot of ethics teachers, because especially if you teach intro to ethics classes, you get these freshmen coming in and they think, oh, philosophy, I'm just going to learn that there are, no, there are no truths and everything is relative. There's no objective truth. And mm. so these you know, grad students and, and trained philosophers come in and just have, they're just bombarded with, with students who are espousing some sort of relativism. And most philosophers aren't relativists. They think they're either objective moral facts um, or they're nihilists of some sort. But, but it's, such, it's such a widespread phenomenon that it's become, it has been labeled freshman relativism. <laughs> and it's sort of a, a joy of a lot of philosophy instructors to put pressure on this view. And I, I think that's a really, I mean, a really great thing. I, I, I think that relativism is false. So, so why do people want there to be moral rel- relativism? Why do these freshmen come in like waiting to hear about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, part of it's just a, a misconception. They have a philosophy that philosophy mm-hmm. just kind of asks big questions, but has no answers and that it just mm-hmm. is meant to lead you into like some sort of skepticism. But philosophers are actually very concerned with, um, a lot of philosophers, I should say, are very concerned with defending what's called common sense morality or common sense knowledge. Um, A a, a tradition that kind of goes back to Thomas Reed, who was an Enlightenment philosopher, says that we we need to do philosophy this way. Start with common sense. There are moral truths. Uh, We do know a bunch of things about reality. And then the, the philosopher needs to figure out how it is that there are moral truths and how it is that we know. But we're not skeptics about those things. We start with them as data points, and then we go on from there. But as far as relativism goes, there are other reasons people are attracted to it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I often hear people say that relativism promotes tolerance, because if you think that your view is objectively right, then it almost gives you a license to be um, almost like oppressive. I hear a lot of this kind of language, like uh, objectivism leads to oppression. Um, it can undermine culture. Um, it can make us, yeah, be bigoted towards people who think differently. Um, and this is related to a second point that it it kind of um, relativism can help undermine this sort of moral imperial imperialism in this this tendency to think we have the moral high ground and to be, to lack humility. So mm-hmm. because you, two, by definition, can't know better than someone. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. I mean, you you don't have the objective moral truth because there is no objective moral truth. Right. There's just your moral truth. And that's no better, has no better claim to being the right moral truth than my own. Mm-hmm. As someone who has at one time been a college freshman and has ministered to many, many college freshmen over the years, mm-hmm. it also has the perks of not demanding much from you morally, mm-hmm. allowing you to have sex with whoever you darn well please, and allowing you to do as much as many drugs or drink as much alcohol as you want. Nor does yeah. it demand that you be particularly responsible with your money or necessarily steward carefully your education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I could, I can see that. I could also see a what you might call a sophisticated relativist pushing back and saying, "No, actually, a lot of those things are are prohibited by our cultural norms." You know, it's it's 
sort of part of our culture to be a good steward of your money, to take care of your body. Um, there's a growing trend of concern with health. Um, there's a growing concern for consent and like healthy sexual experiences. So I can just imagine someone saying, no, our culture actually requires mm-hmm. that we be um, better stewards of these different domains because our culture is like shifting in that direction. But notice that all they can say is that that's what our culture requires. Um, and if the culture had been different, it they wouldn't be required to do any of those things. Hmm. Yeah. And I would still stand by that there are certain self-interested desires that mm. fuel our compassion for this view. I think. Sure. Because, sure. Yeah. Because no one can tell you that you're wrong when you do something that you could argue is right for yourself. Or it's very hard in a lot of things. Mm. Yeah. Because I've met a lot of freshman relativists that are very objectivist about things like murder and rape, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but could not be more relativist when it comes to things like promiscuity. Mm-hmm. Because they're willing to believe in certain absolute moral facts that they have very strong intuitions in relationship to, sure. or that the culture is very strong on. But, and I guess this gets back to an epistemological issue, is that there's so many of these alleged moral facts that are so hard to figure out if they're true that we couldn't possibly know. But we can know things like that rape is bad and that murder is bad because we can show that they're wrong by so many different angles and they've been believed to be wrong by so many different people. Right. Right. Yeah. And most That's of these fair. people are moral intuitionists is the, is what they technically are rather than relativists, you know, mm-hmm. if you okay. want to define your, define those oh. terms a little bit. Oh, just intuitionist means just, I'm just popularly speaking that people take their moral direction from their moral intuitions. I see. That's all. Yeah. Therefore they can be objectivist when they have an intuition that they feel like is objective and they mm-hmm. can be relativist when they have an intuition that they feel like is relative. Yeah. So that would be subjectivism like you were talking I'm about. I'm not saying that that is a I'm not saying that that is how philosophers define intuitionism. Oh, nor am okay. I saying sure. that it is a carefully reasoned philosophical opinion. I think that it's important to recognize that most of us have most people do not have very careful very carefully reasoned philosophical mm. opinions about most things. Right. But it does show how Guilty. it shows how like these thought patterns trickle down and they are impacting our behaviors, even if we don't realize it. Yeah. One of the things that's really important to recognize about philosophy is many of the views philosophers discuss maintain their name when they trickle down among the normal Mm -hmm. populace, but very vaguely resemble at all the philosophies themselves as discussed by yeah. philosophers. That's good. So when philosophers, like Joel was saying, you know, a sophisticated, what he means is like an educated one, like what he's thought of, right? But that's just not what you meet, even in very, intel- like all A students, you know, going to UW-Madison who are like supposedly the cream of the crop. But like most of these folks have not much, have not much thought about these things, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right. Not, not from a philosophical perspective. They may thought have thought about different questions and how they feel like they should be answered. But that's different than analyzing the thinking itself. Sure. Thinking about thinking is very different than thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could be a good Venn diagram buffer sticker. Much that is not overlapped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Let's let's move on to the problems of moral relativism. So, Joel, what are some problems that that you can recognize with this? Yeah. So I, I think there are a number of problems. I mean, perhaps the first and most obvious is that it just really seems like there are certain moral claims which are true 
in a sort of transcendent way, in a way that mm-hmm. isn't determined by my personal beliefs, by the culture's personal preferences. Um, I mean, just think about this, like it is, it is, it is morally wrong to torture an innocent child. It, it's just, it seems incredible that that truth should be fixed by what my culture happens to believe. It really does. And so again, go back to this sort of common sense way of doing philosophy. It's, it just seems like common sense would tell us that, no, that isn't just determined by culture. That's not just something that I subjectively believe. Like that's, that's a fact, just as much as it's a fact that the earth revolves around the sun. Um, so that's one initial problem. Did you guys want to say anything about that? Are you saying that it's because it feels like more fact because more people believe it or it just feel like it feels more true? I mean, that's a really s- simple way of <laughs> saying that, I think. But how do we tell that a w- like as different from what Nick was talking about before with just this intuitional moral belief system? This is an excellent question. I love this. So, so these are questions about what's called epistemology. It's okay. like the study of how we know or how we're justified yeah. in believing things. And oh, I love this stuff. It's so great. So yeah, there, there are two senses of the word intuition. There's this sort of sense that Nick was talking about that laypersons kick around where an intuition is kind of this visceral gut feeling I have about things. Mm-hmm. But the way philosophers use intuitions is in the following way. An intuition is an intellectual seeming, an intellectual seeming. Contrast that with a perceptual seeming. When I look in the fridge, I see a gallon of milk, right? And I'm having this perceptual experience. It seems to me that there's a gallon of milk there. And that is like really good evidence to think there's a gallon of milk there because it perceptually seems that way. And it seems though that there are other kinds of seemings we have that aren't perceptual seemings. So when I'm walking past a pond and I see a child drowning and there's no one else nearby, and it just seems to me like I, I ought to, I morally ought to jump in. I might also have a feeling. I might feel like the rush of adrenaline to save this child. But I also, it also seems to me in an intellectual sense that I ought to do so. Um, and th- that's what philosophers have in mind by an intuition. It's a type of seeming state that's not quite a perceptual seeming. And on one tradition, intellectual seemings or intuitions are sources of justification. If you don't have any contrary evidence to defeat your intuitions, then when you have an intuition, say that it is wrong to torture an innocent child, you gain some degree of justification for thinking that is actually wrong. Now, I want to grant that this is a, you know, a contentious view in philosophy. Not everyone thinks that intuitions are sources of moral knowledge. I'm very sympathetic to this view. And I think there are multiple sources of moral knowledge. I think that intuitions are some of them. I think that Um, testimony is a way of acquiring moral knowledge. Revelation is a way of acquiring moral knowledge. But I would add this theological spin to it. I think that if Christianity is true and we've been created in the image of God to be stewards of the earth, then it's, we should expect that God gives us faculties that are properly suited for getting at the truth. That um, in general, our intuitions about right and wrong are going to be getting things right. And not always, our intuitions can be impacted by culture and so on. But um, we should expect that God gives us this kind of homing device to get at moral reality. So when I say that it really seems like um, it is wrong to torture an innocent child, I don't just mean I feel that it's wrong. I mean it like I'm struck intellectually as if that has to be true. And it can't just be true because I think it's true. 
um, any more than, you know, two plus two equals four isn't true because I think it's true or my culture mm-hmm. thinks it's true. Like it, it just seems like two plus two is four, two plus two equals four all the time, um, irrespective of what I think. Does that kind of help? Yeah. So that sounds to me like our conscience is that. Yeah. I think, yeah. Talking, talking about, about intuitions is kind of a, a, a way of making sense of what our conscience is. Yeah. That's good. Okay. All right. So um, get it. Nick, did you want to add anything to that? Um, there are things that I, no, I think we should just keep moving. Oh, okay. it would be so fun. I want to know what you have to say. <laughs> you've been, you've been suspiciously very quiet. I'm yeah. So, all right, well, we can keep, we can keep moving. Yeah. Should I say something right. about the problem of moral progress real quick? Yes. Yeah. So getting back at the problems of moral relativism is where we're at, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think perhaps one of the most interesting objections to relativism is what's called the problem of moral progress. And the, the, the idea is super simple. So start with this premise or this data point. We make moral progress. We improve, morally speaking, both as individuals and as a culture. Just take culture, for example. Um, think about how the United States has improved morally when it comes to its racial relations. And I just want to grant there is so much room for improvement, so much more room for improvement. But notice that we have accorded, afforded people um, voting rights where they didn't previously have voting rights. Um, we have abolished slavery. If you think that these are moral improvements, then I think you should think relativism is false. Because if relativism is true, these aren't actually improvements. They're just changes between one culture to another. And, um, but that seems wrong. It, didn't, it doesn't seem like our culture has just changed. No, we've gotten better. But you get better relative to a fixed standard that stands above you. So an illustration I've given before, and I actually used this in the, the Christian ethics class. I think I picked on Toby. Toby was in that class. He was great to have it. Toby, if you're listening, shout out right here. He deserves um, it because isn't he a philosophy? Wasn't he a philosophy major? Yeah, yeah. He yeah. he he was a philosophy. He major. should be ready for such things. He's <laughs> he's super sharp. So I mean, just imagine that you know Jill and I are painting a picture of Toby, and I paint a picture. Jill paints a picture, and here's the question: Which of these is better, and which of these is more accurate? Well, one way to assess that is to hold them up against the fixed standard that is Toby, right? But if Toby doesn't exist and Toby is just whatever I want him to be and Toby is whatever Jill wants him to be, then the question, which is better, doesn't really make sense, right? Like mine is different than Jill's, but there's no objective standard, so I can't say that mine is better. And likewise, mm-hmm. if there are no objective moral standards, then the the changes in the United States on race relations can't be morally better. They're just different. But that seems wildly implausible. It seems like they have gotten better. We have improved morally. Pick anything you'd like. Um, think about gender issues and gender reparations and race reparations. We've gotten and better. These, and all these things would, by definition, then, like from a moral rel- relativist standpoint, would, would also not have gotten worse if we went back to slavery. Exactly right. You, yeah, you might just call this the problem of moral regression. Like we can't get worse. We can just change mm-hmm. if relativism is true. But that can't be right. Like we could get better. We could get worse. And so mm-hmm. I think this is a major problem for the relativist and especially for relativists who care about social justice. I find that a lot of my students really have a heart for social justice. And that's a beautiful thing. 
But on this, at the same time, they often endorse relativism. And I think that those two are just intention because social justice mm-hmm. requires improvement. And if relativism is true, there's no improvement. There's just change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think one of the other objections you talked about in our preparation is that this is that though it seems like moral relativism encourages tolerance because you don't need to enforce your view on other people's views because it's not better. What it also does is it undermines tolerance itself as a moral fact. Yes. And so tolerance is itself a relative idea and maybe yes. doesn't need to be enforced. And if your culture doesn't enforce it, or if you don't wish to personally subjectively enforce it, then it's not a moral fact and you don't have to do it. So yeah. in creating more space for tolerance or to, to make it so that you don't need to enforce your view on others and can be tolerant from one perspective, you actually undermine the very concept and moral fact of that tolerance is good in many yes. circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that's worse. It's worse to undermine the truth of the importance of tolerance in many situations in order to take away from people the temptation to be intolerant. Right. Yeah, it's it's almost no victory of our culture that we're more tolerant now than we used to be because tolerance isn't this objective thing that we should be like aiming towards. It's just mm-hmm. what our culture says is right. And there doesn't seem to be anything especially noble or commendable about that. Right. And some people have pointed out, some people think this is pedantic, but I think that it's accurate that if you are tolerant because of the philosophy of moral relativism, you're not actually being tolerant because the concept of tolerance has no meaning in your worldview. So if tolerance inherently means that you disagree with somebody in a morally substantial way and you choose not to control them, but you give them liberty, Mm -hmm. then you can't disagree with someone objectively Mm -hmm. and then give them liberty if you do not believe that there is anything objective about your disagreement. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's it's just not even a, you're not even, it's not even like, it's not technically tolerance. What you're doing isn't tolerating to tolerate someone by definition means they're bothering you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think that's really good. You're actually touching on like another objection, the problem of disagreement. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I will, I think you, you hit it really well. And I would just recommend for our listeners, there's a really nice introduction text to ethics by Rush Schaefer Landau from UW. And it's called the fundamentals of ethics. And he has a really excellent few chapters at the end of the book where he talks about relativism, moral realism, objectivism, and he just he just does a really good job. So I would recommend getting that book and okay. working through it. I think in some of the things you've said so far, I, I'm thinking about how pe- people tend to think in ethics in highly politicized ways right now. And I think some people may have been listening to you so far and thought, you know, we're really taking progressivist assumptions really seriously here in the way Joel is talking, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, but I think also for somebody who's like who takes a more conservative approach to things. These shots at moral relativism are important from the conservative perspective because if moral relativism is false, in order to achieve tolerance, you have to have a political philosophy of liberty. Without a political philosophy of liberty or liberalism, as it was called in the 1800s, then because the idea is is that you should still not coerce people even if you disagree with them in most circumstances because you yeah. should leave them at liberty. And there's a whole body of Western philosophy about a philosophy of liberty mm which our country was originally rooted in and which can only only over time came into fruition in lots of ways that we'll get to here in a second. Mm. And so for people who are like, well, how you know, are you just like ignoring the, these other areas of philosophy? And the answer is no, actually these attacks on moral relativism is what makes functionally necessary in political and social ways, a doctrine of liberty. And so for people for whom liberty is a very close 
an idea very close to their heart. That's one thing that might encourage them. That this you can talk about this in a number of different ways. Yeah, that's really insightful. You're still talking about this, the heart of the same issue. And that's where we're going to end today. We'll get to question two next week. See you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.